Why, hello there. It's nice to meet you. I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite podcast on the Citadel. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we are talking about the spring's gaming news, including Epic vs. Apple, Ubisoft's shift to free-to-play, and much, much more. I'm Jason Schreier. I'm Kirk Hamilton. And I'm Maddie Myers. And we are back for another episode of triple click i almost said kataka split screen but i didn't I, every I time didn't you gotta it. think really hard every slowly time. but surely the muscle memory is fading but it, it is, is there yeah it comes out at the weirdest times welcome welcome <laughs> to triple click max fun drive is over we had a good time uh it was lots of fun we did a live stream we we did got a lot of support from all of you <laughs> for the show we did yeah. thank you all so much and thank you to all those of you who joined new, up new beans cast to listen to for all those people mm. yeah mm-hmm. if you joined if you're a new member you have a lot of beans cast to listen to if you are an upgraded member you might get some cool stuff including our sweet pins which yeah. you could actually buy um because there's going to be a little bit of a pin sale um yeah how long does it last kirk do you know or maddie do you know how long it lasts? i don't know there will be like an ad there, during the trailers there will be an ad with info and all the proceeds go to charity and so you can still go buy your spilling the beans pin even if you missed out on joining max fun drive during joining max fun during the max fun drive and if you are not a member and you would like to be part of fun and help support our listener supported show and get access to our monthly bonus content then you can just go to maximumfun.org slash join and become a member today and sure if can. you do so you will get access to our May Beans cast, our May bonus episode, which is going to go up at the end of the month. And that is an episode about Portal with yeah. special guest Justin McElroy uh, yeah. from Mumbam and Adventure Zone. And uh, I guess the McElroy is just a brand. And the be- let's say the besties, since that's his video game podcast. And the besties. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That other besties. show. Yeah. That um, other video game Yeah. I think we have podcast. a lot of crossover audience with those folks. But yeah. yeah. So um, help, help us out. Support the show. Help us make this show happen. Yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's get to it. Shall we? Let's ma- let's do this show because we and people are paying us to make the show happen. So let's make it happen. Shall we? We better make wow, it happen. Wow, the pressure's on. It's yeah, cooking. This week it. we are doing a news roundup, spring news roundup, because there's been some gaming news and we felt like, hey, we should talk about it. Roundup. Starting <laughs> off with that's the roundup sound. The big yeah. gaming, one of the biggest gaming lawsuits in history. Epic versus Apple. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> it's Epic. Mm-hmm. It's Apple. It's Epic versus Apple. We're it's all epic. saying it. It's imagine like the Mortal Kombat uh, music mm-hmm. and like the Epic Apple round epic one. Epic versus Apple. Some house music yeah. playing. <laughs> um, this trial has been very interesting. Um, at least the first week was in less in in the actual um, contents of the trial itself, and more in like the documents that have leaked out and and revealed some interesting stuff about the behind the scenes of gaming. Nothing that like was too shocking or surprising or anything like that. A lot of it is just stuff that people people already had. A, a feeling for but um long and short of it of this case in case you are not really following it closely is that epic has sued apple arguing that apple is a monopoly and essentially that by both maintaining the iphone and selling the iphone and also selling um operating the store that which is the only place you can get apps on the iphone it is it has a monopoly by having access by having control over both the hardware and the software for the hardware um and 
yeah, I mean, Apple's argument is that that's not true because they're uh, part of this broader competitive landscape that includes every video game system. And it remains to be seen what what will be decided. It's a bench trial, so there's a judge, there's no jury, so the judge is going to decide the outcome. It'll end next week. We don't know when the verdict will come in. It could be weeks from then. It could be months from then. Who knows? Um, and then it'll almost certainly be appealed. So get ready for lots more of Epic versus Apple in the years to come. Um but yeah, it's been interesting to watch. Um, I guess rather than talk about the stuff that's come out of it, I'm curious to hear what you guys think um, of like the actual battle between these two companies. Because I think that like it could have a lot of interesting ramifications, um, whoever wins. I mean, if, if Apple wins, it's kind of like maintaining the status quo. It's saying this is not a monopoly, everything's fine, go back to normal. But there's already been a lot of pressure on Apple to lower their fees for developers, which is kind of at the heart of this whole thing is that they charge 30% for every app and every app purchase on the App Store. Um, and so they, I mean, they already took steps to lower it for people who are making under X amount. Um, and there's pressure that they they might do it further, uh, even if they win this trial. Now, if Epic wins, that'll be really interesting because if it's determined that like that Apple has a monopoly and is violating antitrust laws by both selling the hardware and also controlling all the software on that hardware, then doesn't that mean that Nintendo and PlayStation and Xbox are all guilty of the same thing on their respective consoles. So then we get into really interesting territory. But yeah, I mean, um, Maddie, you have been at least somewhat following this in your capacity as a Polygon editor. What's your take on this whole trial? I think that some of the stories that have come out of it have indicated that a few things have already changed, actually. So a couple things that have happened um, are that Roblox has changed the way that it describes games in its service. So Roblox is basically, I would describe it as a video game platform. It's sold in the App Store, but anybody within Roblox can create a game, sort of like how Minecraft, people use Minecraft to create other versions of games using Minecraft's tools. But Roblox is designed for that exact thing so you can make games within roblox and you can sell them using like in-game currency as opposed to like real money and they've had to update well they we don't know if they've had to but roblox has updated all of its software to say experiences instead of games after getting mentioned in the trial (laughs) because i think they're kind of worried about the fact that it's weird that they're in the app store because it seems like yet another store within a store and that's something Uh that's skirting a little close to the line of what Apple wants to pretend that its store isn't doing. Well, that's essentially what Epic did. That's what Epic did that started this whole thing was was open up their own store within Apple. So yeah. Right. And also Epic has Itch.io as part of its service. And so the lawyers on this case, there've been all these funny quotes coming out about the way that people describe Itch.io as a service, which is like an independent games platform on the internet Basically, anybody can upload a game there. I've put my Twine games on there, so that's how I know anybody can upload something without <laughs> without them stopping you. Um, and there's a bunch of very sexual games on there. There's a lot of horny dating sims on Itch.io. And the result of that is that lawyers will just... There will be these quotes that people will share on Twitter of lawyers reading out these absurd or like <laughs> wonderful, delightful titles of games or like content that you don't even know is on there. And describing it as unspeakable, which I think led some indie devs to make an unspeakable game jam of games to put on itch.io that can't be described in the in the Apple versus mm-hmm. Epic court case because it's just shining a light on these corners of the games industry that 
these these lawyers and these these corporate big shots don't ordinarily have to talk about. And then there's the fact that they're trying to define what a video game even is in order to define the terms. Well, hold on. Well, so back up. The reason so yeah. so the reason that all came up is because Apple is trying to make the point that when Epic, even though Epic has its own store and allows itch.io on there, therefore saying Epic allows a store within a store on their service, they're yep. like it's out of control and it's become this this like uncensored like lurid playground where and like Apple is saying we want our, our store to be clean and we don't want mm-hmm. to allow this filth on here so um, right. we, we can't can't have this right of course I mean that's that's nominally the reason but it's it's kind of a diversion that mostly involves a, a light being shown onto something that ordinarily wouldn't be shown on in a courtroom which is like queer sex games and that part's funny but also a little worrying because it's like you don't really want these massive corporate stakeholders to be taking too much of a close eye on something like Itch.io, which is kind of this special cool thing where indie creators can upload anything they want as compared to something like the App Store, which isn't so much that way. So that part of it is interesting and exciting and scary, but cool because it's like we're watching events unfold in real time and then watching how they're affecting the real world before the case is over, like with the Roblox example, but and then also developers responding to the Itch.io controversy as well. So that's pretty fascinating, at least to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a sort of a underlying puritanical like tone oh, yeah. to a lot of the way that this stuff is talked about that's as old as anything you know just always this is pornography it's smut it's it's disgraceful <laughs> and you know thus it sh- you should be ashamed of it video games sex right, when it's <laughs> when so often it's like whatever like this is not really the point and that stuff is just sort of annoying um slash mm-hmm. concerning just because it reflects a way that people still think about a lot of this stuff in this kind of you know, like tying back to video games being for children and then, oh, but there are games about sex. And so then they're being shown to our children and those kind of things that we've seen since time immemorial um, about various panics related to video games. Like that same tone and that same language is in some of these lawyers' arguments. And that sucks to see. But I agree that it's fun to see someone just trying to describe like a hentai game or whatever, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, using using legal language. Um for anyone who is like me and doesn't have to follow this for work, but does find it kind of interesting, I do want to make a recommendation. And that is the newsletter made by uh, Megan Farouk-Manesh and our former boss, Stephen Totillo. Uh, both sort of, you know, people we've worked with over the years in various ways. Both great. Megan's great. Stephen's great. And they're making the, the gaming newsletter for Axios which I've been subscribed to since they launched it, and they've been following this very closely. And it's been a really great way for me to keep uh, like track of what's going on or just to get these bullet-pointed Axios-style breakdowns. So anyways, shout out to them. If you want to follow this kind of thing, that's a good way to follow it. And that's mainly where my knowledge of this comes from. And the one thing that I like, I really like the stuff that, is like coming out in discovery about mm-hmm. Microsoft and the way, you know, how they approach console sales. There's this Microsoft document where they had an internal review of The Last of Us 2. Did either of you see this? I don't think I did, but tell yeah. me about it. It's fantastic. It's like this very frank review written by, I think, a couple of people at Microsoft just playing The Last of Us Part 2 and then just giving their take on the game to people at Microsoft. <laughs> and it's 
it's really there's just something specific about the tone that I find very enjoyable. It's a very positive, you know, it's like this game is extremely impressive. It's amazing what they're doing. Um, you know, in the end, they're like people will have different takes on it. People will, you know, feel different ways about the story, but there's no denying that these people made the game they wanted to make. This is like very much this like artistic statement. It's pretty incredible. Um, so it's just nice to see the way they talk about it. It's just a little different than a game review. And there's also a line where they're like, also, Naughty Dog still cannot make good gun combat to save their lives or something like that, <laughs> which is also wow, just funny because it's kind of an internal document. Like they're being frank. They're like, look, we've played a lot of video games and the shooting in these games is just never very good. Um, mm-hmm. I think their their takeaway is like, but that's OK, because it, it kind of pushes you towards stealth and it's a better stealth game anyways. Imagine imagine your job being a game critic, except instead of for like a public facing review site, you're doing it internally at Microsoft. It's so There's funny. people who do that. You get yeah. paid a lot of money. I yeah, you get a lot. Well, more. that's well, yeah, there's like also consultants. I wonder if this was external consultants that they brought in or if this was actually people at Microsoft who did it. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. One last thought is just that my understanding of this is that Apple is probably going to win this. Even mm-hmm. in hearing, Jason, your breakdown of this, it's very difficult for me as a layperson to understand how you would possibly draw the line between a monopoly and a non-monopoly. Like as much as I may have different feelings when I read a specific argument about something Apple did or something Epic did, the distinctions that they're trying to draw legally just don't seem to make sense to me because you're not a monopoly if, if you know, even if you do make the phone that the thing is on. Like, Well, the idea is that the iPhone is so big and so ubiquitous that like... It's... But that's the problem, right? Because like you said, Microsoft and Xbox, like Sony and PlayStation, those are all pretty big too. So where do you draw the line between them being a, or not being a monopoly and Apple being a monopoly because iPhones are just more popular? Like to me, at least... That doesn't seem like a legally enforceable line that you can draw and no judge would want to be like, well, let's pick a number. And if you're past it, like that's not really how monopolies work. So my sense of this anyways from the outside and just my very layman sense of the law is that Apple is probably just going to win this and then it'll get appealed and then it'll go on forever. But that's just me looking at it. Yeah, I mean, in general, antitrust laws are hard to win as a plaintiff. But yeah, I mean, I think there is a compelling case in that if you are a game developer releasing your game on Microsoft's Xbox, you have the option of multiple stores. You can also release it on the PlayStation. You can also release it on the on the Nintendo Switch, whatever. Um, as opposed to if you are a phone developer, I mean, you realize you really just have Apple and Google. And so I guess you could say it's a duopoly. But that makes sense. But right. I mean, when you're talking about the law, when there's another option, you're already like, there's no real argument. I there. guess the question is, is Apple so like has Apple does Apple have such a big market share that they have the control there and also is it like is I mean yeah you get into all sorts of questions about their 30% fee and what that actually offers to people and that's what this week is actually Apple's defense and they're going to be talking about like why that's justified and it'll be some some interesting conversations and just how there could be a legally enforceable ruling on any of that Mm -hmm. it's it's I don't see it but I guess I'm not a lawyer and I don't know anything it seems unlikely that Epic will win this but I think part of Epic calculus here was spending the money to win the PR battle and in some ways that they've they've won. Yeah, won you can some see their internal documents about the PR battle as they're, mm-hmm. they're like, well, we're concerned that people are going to see us as this big company that has all yep. this money, so we need to start this campaign and that campaign. Like, that stuff was all in Discovery, yep. which is yep. also yeah, kind yeah. of wild. And we're going to purposefully leak this document about how we feel this way as a part mm-hmm. of the trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Lots so. of it, lots of stuff in there about like them spent all the money they've spent, the amounts of money they spent on exclusive games for the Epic Store mm-hmm. and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, and how much they all cost for those exclusives. That was pretty fascinating to hear 
hear about to see indies talking about what they were each bargaining for to be on the Epic Store. And Mm -hmm. that's valuable information for indie developers, actually. So that part's kind of cool. That'll be helpful leverage for people. One thing that we learned from the case is that um, even though this is kind of like common layperson's knowledge, but now it's official, Microsoft has confirmed that it's never made a profit on the Xbox. Um, And uh, I'm pretty sure that Sony is in the same way. It might not be 100% confirmed, but but they're also selling PlayStation at a loss. Nintendo has done the same for previous consoles. I don't know if the Switch is sold at a loss. It might not be, but Microsoft confirmed that every Xbox is sold at a loss, which really helps you understand a lot about their strategy and why they don't really care that much about selling the most Xboxes as much as they do getting you on their services and getting you subscribing for games. And in Pass. fact, maybe want to sell fewer Xboxes since each Xbox costs them money. <laughs> yeah, right. they don't want right. you to buy it. They hope you don't. Yeah, right. guys, buy don't, buy, don't buy Xboxes. We make money the less the fewer right. Xboxes we sell the more money we Sell make. us back our Xboxes. We are really hurting for cash. No, but of course, I mean, of course Microsoft also makes a but load of money from their store because they're taking that 30% cut off of every single game that's sold on the digital Microsoft store. So um, they make plenty of money. Right. And like Microsoft is the size of a large country. Like that's (laughs) something that gets lost a lot of times when people talk about Microsoft, even comparing them to Sony and and Nintendo is just a weird comparison because Microsoft is so much bigger and has so much more money. They're like a juggernaut and like, you know, I, I don't want to say Xbox is a rounding error because I don't know what their finances really are, but they're nowhere near as concerned with losing money on Xbox, even yeah. as Nintendo or Sony would be on losing money on a console. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why it's funny that that all these com- companies have their fanboys and like their tribalistic armies because it's like you are literally like you're fighting for this the scrappy Xbox brand and Phil Spencer, and it's like no, this company actually owns everything in the world, so right, it's worth a trillion and a half or whatever. Right, it like is, they make so. money from military contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. But yeah, no, yeah. just interesting, just interesting industry stuff. Hey, Maddie, tell us about Pokemon cards. Yeah, so this is this is a bizarre pandemic story that's been unfolding. It actually started a little bit before the pandemic, I believe. It's hard to say when the Pokemon card uh, speculation blew up exactly, but it's become a huge bubble. And I think part of why it happened was because apparently in 2020, Logan Paul YouTuber, uh, you know, noted a hole. That's his persona that he plays on the internet anyway. Um, <laughs> bought a really expensive card as like part of a video stunt or whatever. And that kicked off some of the conversations about. Pokemon cards in general and how valuable certain cards are. But then that's coincided with just over the course of the pandemic, a whole bunch of people, for whatever reason, have just been going through their basements and all their belongings and doing spring cleaning Mm. or whatever and finding all of their old Pokemon cards. And this has been happening with Magic cards as well and just other card collecting games in general, CCGs where people are finding these old valuable cards from their childhood and being like, well, let me let me give these to somebody who professionally inspects cards and see how much these cards are really worth. And then let me sell, sell these cards and for a profit. And then that has been something that so many people have been doing in the past few months that it has led to significant problems for the people who run businesses to 
price cards, first of all, those businesses are like wildly backed up and overrun. And there's a wonderful report mm-hmm. in Vice about how these these businesses have popped up just for people to price out how much each Pokemon card is worth. And they're like months and months and months behind. And they're just getting tons and tons of cards and boxes from people who are like, just tell me how much my cards are worth. And these are like really expensive boxes that people are concerned about mailing away that are just stacking oh, up in these warehouses. But then at the same time- but Why are people still buying them? Well, why did people buy Beanie Babies? You know what I mean? It's like, it's just become a speculative bubble where these cards are worth money because people say they're worth money. And some of them are, you know, specifically rare cards. There were only a few of them created and there are only a few in pristine enough condition to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's explicable. But then also new Pokemon cards and just regular card packs at Target have become in hugely high demand. And there have been actual physical altercations at Target specifically, because I guess Target is the main real retailer that's still selling them. Also McDonald's did a Pokemon card thing as part of its Happy Meal promotion for a while. And that was hugely in high demand. So basically people have lost it over Pokemon cards and it's resulted <laughs> in some very weird and fascinating stories that We've been wow. reporting on in Polygon, and I've read other outlets reporting on because it's so just So Target been... stopped selling them, right? Yes, briefly, yes, because of safety concerns, because they didn't think they could, like, stop people rioting in the aisles over Pokemon cards and, like, actually getting into fights over the card packs. So, yeah, for now, at the time of us recording this, Target is not selling Pokemon cards. But they might again soon. This feels to me like it's sort of another arm of the general financial insanity that has gripped all of us between Dogecoin and crypto and NFTs and the GameStop meme stocks. The GameStop thing really reminded me of this too, in the sense that as I was, as I've been reading about the Pokemon situation, it feels like it's just a little bit heightened above a a perception that I have where I feel like somebody's going to write us a wonderful lengthy email explaining more of the Pokemon speculative bubble, like beyond my understanding in the Mm -hmm. same way that GameStop, I'm like, I think I kind of understand this, but there's a few levels to it that are beyond me. Because there are also (laughs) people like flipping cards online for a profit and stuff like that. And like bots, using bots to get cards. And that's a whole (laughs) part of the market as well. I think everyone in their 20s and 30s who is A, stuck home and bored, and B, realize that they're they're with their stagnant wages and and crazily exploding home prices, there's no way to live the kind of American dream, middle-class life of a home, two kids and a dog, uh, without doing something to get rich quick. So suddenly Mm -hmm. you have all of these get-rich-quick schemes popping up. And and I guess for some some people, it's it's working. Some of them don't work. I mean, it's also the economy is so crazy that it's like, yeah, I mean, why not? make a bunch of money by by putting it all into dogecoin well Um, yeah i mean there is a lot of money being put into the economy right now a lot of people maybe have expendable income that they got uh from stimulus money and there's just there's like a group psychology to this that i'm sure much will be written about where like on tiktok the financial advice on tiktok it's this whole thing and i'm sure that this pokemon card thing is a whole thing on tiktok um, and on other social media but there primarily and it's wild i mean there's people giving terrible like (laughs) advice financial advice what 
on social media? No, that can't <laughs> no, can be you right. believe it? Um, but there's this sense of like, I sold this card for X amount of money, or like I bought this stock and sold, and I made a million dollars. Or like know? I went to my parents' basement and I found this rare Charmander, right. and like I don't know, maybe you have some cards like that, right. and then like more people are mailing away their cards to these these people who are having to expand their businesses to like price out how much these cards are worth, <laughs> and in six months maybe no one will even care anymore, and these cards will not even be worth what they were worth now so mm-hmm. who even knows it's mm-hmm. so silly and kind of sad but probably it's fine i don't know maybe people shouldn't be trying to sell their pokemon cards right now i don't know it just feels like another act in an ongoing in an ongoing saga um speaking of pandemic craziness yeah. semiconductor shortage continues um we are still just i mean it's been months almost a year now we have been facing these issues of parts just being like uh, just this massive shortage on chips um, and that is affecting everybody that's affecting GPUs it's affecting PS5s it's affecting Xboxes and like washing machines and cars and everything yeah everything who everything cares GPUs and yeah, PS5s right? we're talking about games here <laughs> it's gonna affect Apple stuff yeah they said they're gonna lose a lot of money uh, although I did just buy a new MacBook so so uh, I guess mine was fine um, but I guess I got one of the, the last semiconductor chips in my in my laptop and my new MacBook. There is kind of that feeling, right, of preciousness to where like I you know, not that long ago, six months ago or so, I was talking about how I wanted to upgrade my graphics card mm-hmm. and, um, you know, get a get a 3080, the, the 3000 series. And now they're still completely unobtainable and they will be for a long time, not just because of the semiconductor thing, but also because of crypto mining. I just saw that NVIDIA is now nerfing their graphics cards so that they yep. can't be used for the specific type of processing that huh. like crypto people want to use. Wow. Which, then means that if you got an earlier one that doesn't have this marking of I can't remember what it is, but you know it's like, it, you know they've they've removed the ability to do this thing that that's going to be worth even more. So there's going to be yeah. another weird market for like these aftermarket limited edition now 3080 is going to be worth a crazy amount. Like my like graphic cards, like old GPUs are worth a ton of money right now. Like it's I know I, could, I don't know how I haven't looked, but I bet I could get like more than I paid for it several years ago. A lot more. Yeah, I have an old graphics card that I kind of want to sell, but I'm also like, because I got sent the 3070 to review for work. And so I still have my old card that I just was like, after I move, I'll try and go through stuff and sell some things. But now I feel like if I sell my old card, some crypto weirdo will buy it and ruin rainforest. So I'm like, should I not sell it? Like, what should I do with this? I don't know what to do anymore. So it's burning a hole in my pocket. There's the feeling of preciousness too. Like my Switch, Nintendo has said, like this could affect Switch manufacturing. And if they're going to announce, like has been rumored, this better Switch for later this year, that could become another thing where like if you pre-order it, maybe you get one, maybe you don't. And it just becomes impossible to get. And I think like, what if I drop my Switch? Like I'm never going (laughs) to... be able to replace it. They're still out of stock everywhere. And there's a feeling of sort of, well, I got all the things. Managed to buy a PS5. Let's just hope nothing breaks because <laughs> I'm never getting a replacement for any of them, which is a weird <laughs> a weird thing to feel. It is yeah. bizarre and there's really no end in sight. It's just so strange. And it seems like every time like like there's just something in the news every week that seems to be affecting supply shortages around the inter- around the world. Yeah. Like uh, the Suez Canal thing. And- well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about some video game companies. Ubisoft is doubling down on free-to-play stuff. 
they've announced. Um, mm-hmm. So they're essentially saying, hey, we are going to, um, we're not just making three to four big budget games per year, three to four AAA games per year. We are making um, high quality free to play games across our biggest franchises. So, for example, they announced the Division Heartland, which is a free to play version of the Division. Um, they're doing a mobile Division game, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically them branching out into all these different worlds. Um, essentially, they're looking at Activision and seeing Activision do Call of Duty and then also Call of Duty Warzone and then also Call of Duty Mobile. And they're saying, hey, we want some of that pie. So Ubisoft is doing the same thing, which means that we'll see free to play Assassin's Creed games and uh, free to play Far Cry games and all that good stuff. In addition to that, and we can also talk about this, Ubisoft, again, delayed Skull and Bones, the long, <laughs> long delayed pirate game. Does anyone care? <laughs> I, I feel bad because uh, uh, it's, it's yeah, I feel bad about the development of that game. But um, uh, uh, it was originally announced as like, hey, this is a, sp- a spinoff of Black Flag. That's just the ship combat that people love. And it's funny because as an outside observer, if you knew nothing about game development and the way it works, you would think, oh, that's a great idea. Like, easy thing to make. Like, you can make right. that and you just got take, the ships, take what you, you got. got. Yeah, take the mechanics, yeah. just release it as a standalone game. Easy, like, fall, fill a gap in your financial hole that fall. Four years later, the game has been delayed, like, seven times and is nowhere in sight. That is because it's changed direction a lot and, like, gone through multiple reboots and, and multiple creative directors, among other things. But, yes, very, very wild story. But, um, so yeah, I mean, what do you guys think of both both bits of Ubisoft news here? Um, just on the, the like, spinoff thing, because the free-to-play thing is a sort of bigger topic, but just something that I thought of when you were saying that is that, you know, Immortals Phoenix Rising is a kind of a good example of a game that Phoenix, there that Ubisoft did kind of knock out, yeah. that was mm-hmm. taking a lot of the systems from Assassin's Creed and then just borrowing a bunch of stuff really liberally from, from Zelda, and they made a game that felt it felt like kind of one of those, oh, let's just make a thing and we'll put it out and see what happens. It's supposed to be out even sooner. It's supposed to be out like the February before. That's it right. Out. It had like this ludicrous release date yeah. and it is like a yeah. perfectly good game. And that's so that's a kind of an example of them actually pulling off the thing that I'm surprised Skull and Bones wasn't. It could have been very similar where it's like, mm-hmm. well, the pirate ships and, you know, it's all familiar, a lot of the same people. And then it has its own thing and it's just a pirate story. And yet, no. <laughs> well, it's multiplayer, so I'm sure yeah, that added some, all kinds of complexities right, to balancing other game. and all of it. I mean, that's got to be a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think what happened there is that they were just going in different directions, and it was like, okay, For we sure. should add more of a story campaign, and okay, oh, Sea of Thieves came out, so we have to be different than that, and and mm-hmm. it was just like kind of one of those classic game development stories, I believe. I'm sure, sure the boondoggles. Come out one day, um, but right as of now, the game is delayed until what next year, twenty twenty two, and who, who knows? knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But the free to play thing, yeah, yes, it's um, interesting. It is. <laughs> this is one of those things where there's like a part. There's this whole huge money world that's just like not the world that I think any of the three of us live in. Where it's just like a they make a ton of money. I mean, clearly anyone looking at a balance sheet at most of these companies is like, well, look at where we're making all our money. It's like from free to play games on phones and stuff. Like mm-hmm. that's still the case, which is funny because it just makes it feel like it's whatever year that was, 2011, all over again. But in a lot of ways, that never went away. It's just companies figured out that they could make money there and 
by making big single-player games when the PS4 and the Xbox One came out and were so popular? Let me just make one thing clear, because there was originally some reporting that came out when this was announced that was like, they're eschewing, they're abandoning some of the AAA stuff in favor of the free-to-play stuff, but that's absolutely not the case. Like, that's just how gamers think of everything. It's always <laughs> zero-sum. That's yeah, single-player is dead. No more Assassin's Creed mm-hmm. single-player. It's all R.I.P. over. But no, they made it very clear that like Assassin's Creed Valhalla was the most lucrative one yet, and yeah. like they're making a ton of money on those games. Right. So yes, to your point, Kirk, I think it it's true. Those consoles are selling like hotcakes. Like people yeah. want to buy PS5 games, like you know, really badly <laughs> right now. Yep. So yep, yep, you, yep. you would be dumb not to do both. Yeah, maybe if there were more of them, that would help actually. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess oh, well. the doubling down on free to play, it's very hard not to view it as that kind of a zero sum conversation because it's like, oh, uh, the division free to play. Where with the division, I'm a little like because the division is a loot shooter and that comes with a certain style of play where like you can put on a podcast and just enjoy those sweet, yeah. sweet dopamine hits and just run around and pick up different kinds of guns and shoot at people in the White House or whatever and it's an apocalypse and right. it's it's fun. It's a lighthearted gun apocalypse <laughs> game and you just kill some time in there. Whereas something like Assassin's Creed, like yeah, sure. There are moments that feel like that and have that, that you know, just clicking dots on the map, as I always say. But there's also story in there and there's emotional mm-hmm. beats and there's the single player part that's dying and getting abandoned, as we all Stuff know. Stuff to attach to. Stuff to get attached to. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Like, it makes sense that The Division would have a mobile tie-in. That is logical. I can envision right. some games that that would be and they would work within that game's world. Yes. Basically, there's actually kind of a, a direct line from a service game to a free-to-play game. Like, most service games can very easily morph into some version of free-to-play similar to what Destiny did, where, like, Mm -hmm. the base version of the game became free, and then they gradually released stuff that was pay, and now that game has become closer and closer and closer to just being Warframe, to just being free-to-play. Warframe's a great example, too, where there is a story, but it's like a service game story. You know, it's a little more like an MMO. And those kinds of games just seem to lend themselves that way. And The Division has always felt like that because it is a service game. It's always been, like you said, a loot shooter, where Assassin's Creed just isn't. So I think... I have a more hesitant reaction when I hear the idea, like, Jason, you just threw this out there. I know that they they haven't announced anything like this, but of an Assassin's Creed free-to-play game, because that feels a little more like, oh, well, you're taking a thing that is one thing and turning it into something else. Where with The Division or even... Or even Far Cry. Well, they've already done that a million times. There are Assassin's Creed platformers, there are Assassin's Creed, like, movies and books, and, like, Assassin's Creed is on everything. No, but, like, those platformers aren't... I'm not talking about mobile, I'm talking about free-to-play. Those platformers, as far as I know, aren't free-to-play games. Those are self-contained, side-scrolling, whatever. They're spin-off games, but they're not, like, a, like just open, free-to-play, Genshin Impact-style Assassin's Creed game, which is, I think, the thing that people might picture. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I had in mind. So I was thinking that this would be like a spinoff, like a Battle Royale, Assassin's Creed Battle Royale, where everyone plays as like a, a, an assassin and tries to stab each other, that sort of thing. I'm not imagining. That would be really fun. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, like everybody yeah, exactly. gets um, into exactly. their own that's personal I, mainframe and then they all enter this like multiplayer world where they're playing as their own ancestors, but it's like Fortnite or whatever. And like, <laughs> this is, that's exactly like, what Genghis they're Khan, going And like, also, I don't know, some other warlord is there sure. as well. Stalin. Yes, anyway. I mean that's 100 percent going to happen. Like Kirk, the Genshin Impact is really Will like <laughs> like super far on the extreme. Like most most even most game publishers do not want to take that risk of like going into gambling and like. That. No, no, I know. I'm not talking about. No, no, I'm not talking about making it into a into a gotcha game. I'm just saying 
there is there's certainly a widespread concern whenever this conversation comes up among people that a game like Assassin's Creed will be turned into a game that you just play for free and kind of has a thin plot and mostly revolves around loot and you wander around the world and do repetitive stuff like you do in Assassin's Creed already and it just mm-hmm. becomes more of a maybe Genshin Impact is a bad example but of like some free to play game like that that looks AAA but has all of these you know like microtransactions built into it and that's the ongoing like for more than a decade concern among people who play video games and i think that what we're really describing happening is not that it's more no like it's something these separate. series make a more natural shift into these other worlds where there's just a lot of money to be made clearly because ubisoft is already making money in those spheres but it's not even a shift it's like separate entities it's like call of duty call of duty is a perfect model to look at there's still a yearly call of duty game in addition to warzone which is a free to play battle royale thing that's exactly what we're going to see from assassin's creed it's exactly what we're going to see from far cry like it's going to be the big temple games and maybe even unique weird smaller games in the case of far cry especially and then also free to play stuff like it's just additive it's like totally additive it's not morphing like like i know the newest the next assassin's creed that's being worked on is is certainly not like a gonna be a weird free-to-play thing right. it's like a massive another massive game so yeah right. which I is mean, the important thing to reassure people of is my point yeah that's the thing yes the new like assassin's creed the mainline assassin's creed series is not transforming to some like like yes. loot shooter like predatory gotcha stuff um but yeah no i mean i just think it's interesting that like you see these companies like it almost feels like they should have been doing this for years already, adopting these multiple models and and trying to trying to do all of the above. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they do and if they make anything that like people really stick with and that resonates with people. Because like you guys said, I mean, as soon as I said Assassin's Creed Battle Royale, you were both really excited. So like, I could see it working in in a lot of ways. Yeah, I could see it working, and also it working in a way that is like doesn't seem like like passes me by completely but then mm-hmm. they announced that it made them five billion dollars i'm like oh it <laughs> yeah. did <laughs> like, yeah totally because you know, that happens all the time with these you either of stick with it or you don't just like like any service game it's like it either becomes your big game for a while or it doesn't um let's talk about one more thing one more news item this happened a couple of weeks what? ago one more thing it's not time one for one more thing. thing what are you doing um, one more news item <laughs> Uh, Bloomberg reported that CD Projekt, the developer of Cyberpunk 2077, uh, is giving its executives massive cash bonuses despite the game being kind of a disaster. Um, a flop, I would call it. Um, because but it not made- financially. Yes, financially, because it sold fewer copies than... Uh, I remember I got into so many arguments with gamers about this because I called it a flop in my article. It sold 13 million copies, which to the three of us, to anyone, seems amazing. It's like, holy shit, 13 million copies. But that was below their expectations, and therefore it was a flop. Like, when okay. you're CD Projekt and you're only releasing mm-hmm. one game every five years, and you need to sell... Kirk, don't 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 even can i be a gamer and argue with you just that the word flop comes mostly from the world of movies and when something is a high profile flop it's like a real failure like it doesn't recoup the money that they spent on it exactly and is that the case here i don't know i don't know if they're recouping the money they spent on it probably but that's not what they needed what they needed was like a game that sold like 30 million copies or i believe 16 million was the analyst projection and that's like Mm -hmm. a good a good kind of baseline for looking at like what the executives expected and then what happened was even though it was 13 million 13 million sales at launch it just went and plummeted because it got removed from the PlayStation Store and all the feedback and critical reception made people not want to buy it anywhere. 
And so it just became a massive flop. But we're not here to get into some. I mean, the word flop is loaded, and I can understand why people would take umbrage with it. But, anyways, we are here to talk about the fact that the executives, including the director of the game and everyone on the board, walked away with giant cash bonuses of between four and six million dollars in contrast to your average like employee bonus, which is much, much lower, closer to the thousands. And those employees are still crunching, right? They're making that online mode, I guess. Um, I, would, I don't know if they're crunching. I mean, from what I've heard from at least a few folks over there, the company has kind of like eased eased up on the gas Thank pedal God. and said to people, hey, you don't since since the game came out, really, I think they they've been less um, hesitant. I mean, I think they're scared of like the the reception and the articles and like and I, people I think quitting, want, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. They widespread attrition is definitely a concern. Um especially once bonuses are paid out it'll be interesting to see like how many people leave but yeah no it's uh it's it's very just typical it's like such a typical story because uh, uh, these executives, I mean, essentially, like, did not do their jobs. Like, they were responsible for making sure that this game released in the state in, in a in a fair state, in a state that people would want to play it in. Um, they were the ones who chose not to delay it into 2021 for whatever reasons they chose. Maybe there were financial necessities, but this was up to the board to decide that. And they, I mean, they definitely got punished financially in the sense that a lot of their compensation is tied up in stock and they own a lot of stock in CD Projekt and that has gone tanked um, to a, like a two-year low or something like that. And so that money is, is is lower than it was. They have less money there than they did before. But they're still walking away with these massive, massive cash bonuses, more, more in these cash bonuses than most of their employees will see in a lifetime. And that, to me, is just like, well, yep, this is, this is exactly how this all works. This is what happens here. Um, the numbers were pretty spectacular. Essentially, they took 20% of the company's profits and split them into two pools, 10% and 10%. 10% went to 865 employees and 10% went to like five, six, seven board members. So that's that's all you need to know about how this Yeah, goes. that pretty much says it all. I mean, it's yeah. nice that people got bonuses at all, like, you know, lower on the totem pole. But still, like that split, that tells the whole story. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think they had a lot of people had hoped for bigger bonuses. And what's really ironic with this whole thing is that if they had pushed the game to 2021 and like it hadn't gone through all the cat- catastrophe it had, let's say it, it sold twice as many copies or whatever, they all would have received much bigger bonuses, including the executives. So it was really just a, just such a short-sighted thing and the executives still walk away with millions. I'm sure the executives are very bummed out about only getting a $3 million bonus instead exactly. of an $8 million exactly. They probably <laughs> actually exactly. are is what's sad yeah, about it. Like, yeah. They probably still see this as a failure and are annoyed about their stocks and and so on and so forth and are blaming mm-hmm. each Definitely. other, which is which is sad because as you say, Jason, a lot of it does come down to them, at least according to your reporting and other reporting, it is just it seems like management was the problem in a lot of cases with this game because <laughs> just the descriptions of employees not being directionless, not knowing what they should be working on, the game itself feeling so unfocused. I mean, those are those are leadership problems. Those aren't just individual underlings having trouble. So that's very depressing to me to think that that resulted in leadership getting rewarded and and regular people having to find new jobs probably if they really want a different workplace that doesn't suck so bad. Do you feel like people's attitudes about CD Projekt have changed? This is mostly a question for the two of you because I feel like you two were assuring me before this game came out that CD Projekt has a great reputation with gamers, which 
I it guess it's, it's it true. It did. Yeah, no, it's 100% true. I mean, no, it was true at the time. It yeah. was definitely true. But, but I think that that now, I mean, I think it's so easy for them to win people back. Like, all they have to do is fix yeah. the game, um, release, like, some enhanced edition, give away a bunch of stuff for free. Like, anything that's, like, gamers, as a way of saying, sorry, we'll give you all the DLC for free or whatever it is. Like, we'll give you the PS5 version for free if you bought the game anywhere. Like, whatever it is. Like they know how to win people back. If 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 CD Projekt is excellent at anything, it's marketing and PR, and they will find a way to like win people's hearts back. I will say though that I don't think that's easy, only because fixing this game is not easy. And also, yeah. they have taken a hit. I mean, there's no question to me, at least when I see people talk about them, like it's not at all the way that people used to talk about them before yep. this game came out. So they do have something they have to fix. And while I think they know what they have to do, saying, well, they just have to fix the game is like, the game is pretty fucked up. Like, I know yeah. some people yeah. had fun with it, but you know, they can probably get it there, but it's it's got some real issues. So it, it, they could also blow it. And it is a, a mark on their reputation. So I don't know if it's quite as easy as, or quite as much of a sure thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I almost feel like the re-release of The Witcher 3, which I don't think is out yet. They're putting together like a next gen update for mm-hmm. it. So right. I feel like yep. something like that is a way to recoup some goodwill because that game's already so popular. But I don't know if fixing cyberpunk in a meaningful way is really possible because the mm-hmm. problems with that game and its lack of direction are baked into the game. Like it's not just the bugs and the fact that it didn't run very well, like those things you could fix, right. but then also the game itself wasn't what people thought it was going to be. And I don't mm-hmm. think you can fix that. Yeah. I yeah. wonder, I mean, only cause there are, I know people who've played all the way through it, which I should say, I don't think any of us have, and I haven't. So no, like there are people who played all the way through it on PC and have been like, it was good. I totally enjoyed myself and thought it was fine. And I could see the game getting rehabilitated as just like a solid B plus mm-hmm. that like gets polished enough. Or like a cult favorite almost. Yeah. yeah. It's like a kind of a deus ex, whatever that like it fades into the past that it was promised as this like amazing transformative Grand Theft Auto world that you can live in. And it just becomes like, oh, it was like a pretty fun open world deus ex game that they polish up enough to make it playable i could see that like given that there are enough people who say that but also i haven't played it all the way through and i wonder i mean at some point i will i hope Mm -hmm. that i want to at some point like that they get it to where it's interesting enough to do that Uh, so i guess it's partly something that at least the three of us will have to see Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um okay why don't we take a break and then we will be back with one more thing We have wasted this world. Our magic put a storm in the sky that has rendered the surface of our planet uninhabitable. But beneath the surface, well, that's another story entirely. In a city built leagues below the apocalypse, survivors of the storm forge paths through a strange new world. Some seek salvation for their homeland above. Others seek to chart the vast undersea expanse outside the city's walls. And others still seek, what else? Fortune and glory. Dive into the Ether Sea, the latest campaign from the Adventure Zone, every other Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. The 2021 pin sale has begun. Thank you so much to everyone who participated in the Max Fun Drive. This is the last year for a while that we'll be doing pins for Max Fun Drive, and the fifth year that we'll be selling pins and donating all proceeds to charity. The past year proved what we already knew. 
that having access to the internet at home is a necessity for work, school, healthcare, and keeping in touch with family and friends. So the proceeds from this year's pin sale will go towards Everyone On, a nonprofit working to bridge the digital divide. We're grateful that with your support, we'll be able to help low-income folks gain access to affordable computers, internet services, and digital literacy programs. The sale will run until May 28th. Folks at the $10 monthly level and above will have access to all of the pins from the drive. That's 38 pins, one from every show on the network. We also have a special 2021 Max Fun Drive pin that all members can purchase. Go to MaximumFun.org slash pin sale for more info. And to learn more about Everyone On and support them directly, you can go to EveryoneOn.org. Hello, hello, we are back. Kirk, Maddie, let's do it. Let's talk about one more things. Sure. Maddie, take us away. Start us off. Kick us off here. So I watched a television show called Lupin, season mm. one. It's a Netflix show. It's in French. I speak French, so that was a huge perk mm. for me. I got that to watch nice. it in French with English subtitles and feel like I totally understood all the French. <laughs> Would I have understood it if I'd been watching it with French subtitles or no subtitles? Who can truly say? But... I got to feel like I really know French and I'm so good at it. But more importantly, I really recommend this show. This is a very, very cool show. It is about, it is set in the modern day. It's about a man who gets, for a variety of reasons, very obsessed with the fictional character Arsène Lupin, who is a gentleman thief. And he sort of self-styles his own life and thieving practices after the practices of Arsène Lupin. And is on a revenge quest that's very sympathetic because of something that happened to his father when um, the main character, whose name is Asen, not Arsen, Asen, mm-hmm. um, when Asen's father is wrongly accused, when Asen is a little boy, that affects him and then motivates his revenge quest for the rest of all time. And it is it is a thriller. It is also one of those shows where you get to watch somebody pull off amazing heists over and over and you can't believe they're going to pull it <laughs> off. And it's so fun to watch. Like very Ocean's Eleven-y. Like that's, that's always very pleasing to the brain to watch mm-hmm. somebody plan something out and then enact it. Or they don't tell you what they're going to do and you just get to watch whatever absurd scenarios they set up. And that's fun. Um, and then the other added bonus to it is that there's just some general commentary about like the assumptions that people make about black people in day-to-day life. And he gets away with um, a lot simply by virtue of no one paying attention to him. And that's signposted pretty effectively in the show and is something interesting about it. So yeah, I I liked it. I liked it a lot. Cool. I want to watch it. I like heist. Oh yeah. You should watch it. You also watched it, Kirk. What'd you think? Um, I did also watch it. I think I talked about it as one more thing a while ago. Um, yeah, you did. And you thought it was great. Because I, I remember thinking that I would want to watch it. Yeah. So I also yeah. um, speak a little bit of French and so enjoyed the French of it, the Frenchiness of it all. Yeah. It's also only five episodes, I should say. So it's like a very digestible watch. So I would say, like, and I, I made this complaint at the time. So yeah, Omar Sy is amazing. The actor yes. who plays the lead in this show is just wonderful and so fun to watch. He's really good. And it is only five episodes, though part two is coming out very shortly and it's going to mm-hmm. pick up right where part one ends off, which is on a huge cliffhanger. Yes. And I actually felt like the show was a little bit diminishing returns only because the way that it's organized is like there's one amazing heist that it opens with that's just yes. this amazing heist. And there's a lot of fallout from that and some subsequent sub heists. And then we're setting up a much larger conflict that's all part of the same revenge plot that's going to, I think, reach its conclusion in part two. And mm. 
I'm, I think my critique at the time was a little like, oh, the final episode is like pretty has a lot of contrivance and times we were just like, wait, why is this person here? Like, how did this happen? Which I think would be less of a big deal in a middle act kind of a deal than it was as the finale. And given mm-hmm. that part two is about to come out and I'm really excited for that, I have a feeling that I'll I'll hopefully like have a much stronger opinion of the whole narrative once it's complete. And I can't wait for part two just because like, how is he going to pull it off? How is he going to get out of this one? You know, which I know, is the whole fun of the show. I know, He's in an absurd situation. This is reminding me why I waited, I think. I think I was yeah. waiting for part two to come out. So yeah. It's only two parts, right? Or is there going to be more? Um, no I don't idea. know. If it, I don't know. Um, okay. I, it was planned as two parts initially. Like this story is clear being told over two parts and Got it. I mean it's I think it's pretty successful for them so I would be surprised if they weren't at least considering making more but I don't really know cool yeah Lupin I want to watch it Kirk what's your one more thing my one more thing is a TV show that I didn't like <laughs> great <laughs> oh no I watched some of- it is rare it is rare that one of us brings up a one more thing that we didn't like but it's uh, true but bring it on yeah I thought I'd throw it in there because it's it's been much discussed in the nerdiverse and um, I actually didn't watch every episode of it um, Emily started watching this show called The Nevers that was on HBO Max uh, this is Joss Whedon's much troubled show that he sort of launched and then abandoned how can you watch a Joss Whedon thing now um I don't know it's because it was on <laughs> you just put yeah, it on I the mean, television just... and then you sit down in front of it yeah I guess so no, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, don't judge me. Um, it was, no, no, no. It's not a you thing. It's more just like he's so gross. Yeah, all right. Go, well, no, he's not ahead. even involved with the show anymore, so that's part oh, okay, of it. Like it. So he created this show, and it's a very Joss Whedon-y premise, for better and for worse. Um, it's like the premise is kind of like Victorian X-Men, mostly X-Women, in sort of Victorian England, these people all get special powers from a crazy event that happens. And then you've got people with all sorts of powers being oppressed by the government. But in Victorian England, pretty cool sounding premise, right? And mm-hmm. then there's all this wild stuff that starts happening. Um, I didn't watch the show until like the third episode. And I just sort of have been out of stuff to watch. And Emily will just sort of put stuff on sometimes. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I'll watch this like Victorian England X-Men shows. Sure. And started watching it and like really just was disappointed by it in a lot of ways. It's a lot of just people sitting around being glum and sort of talking about things and not a lot of people shooting fireballs out of their hands or like, <laughs> you know, doing other cool stuff. The best thing is that one of the one of the uh, women's powers is that she's just huge. <laughs> so yeah, like, I have seen screenshots of this. She's just like a Like the Resident lady. Evil lady? Yes, yes, but she's much bigger than bigger, that. Bigger, yes. She's younger than a lot of them, so she's kind of like, I don't know, yeah. maybe like a 14-year-old girl, but she's like the size of a house. And they don't use her a lot because it's, I think, difficult to do the special effect. But every time she's on screen, it just rules because it's like hilarious and weird looking. And, you know, you're like, norm- most of the powers, it's like, oh, I can see the future. I can shoot fireballs. It's like heroes or X-Men or whatever. But then there's just this huge girl <laughs> sometimes, and you're like, oh, right, that's pretty weird. Um, but then she doesn't get to do much, so that's also sort of disappointing most of the powers aren't that interesting it's like when ant-man is just big in the yeah, Avengers yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of got yeah it's just like a, a outsizely huge person in a scene with other people or even I, re-watching lord of the rings recently the way the hobbits look next to gandalf like the, those kinds of camera effects are just enjoyable and cool so anyways kind of disappointing it has what's kind of weird about it and i didn't really know this because i hadn't looked a ton into the the making of it i knew whedon had stepped away from the show and that it had gone through some trouble but it's just that it only is six episodes the sixth episode i won't spoil anything but like has a huge twist and like a giant like paradigm shifting stuff happens i'm sure some of you listening have seen headlines like what just happened on the nevers and i was like what like it has a 
it's just a giant paradigm shift that then is the series, the season finale. And the show is, I don't think in production right now, there's a new showrunner taking over because we then left saying like he couldn't commit to the show, but it was also when all the allegations were coming out about him mm-hmm. being horrible on past sets. So who really knows why he left, but he's gone now. Someone else is taking over the show, but it was supposed to be a mid season, like, and now you know what's really going on. Let's go. And instead mm. it's like, and now you know what's really going on. Okay. See you maybe in a year or two. And that's also <laughs> very disappointing. So, yeah. I was just, you know, disappointed by the show in general. Um, despite not seeing every episode, I was like, I would watch this. This premise seems okay. And just mm. eh, not really. So not much of a recommendation, I guess. Maybe it'll have a second act that's actually pretty good, though. It seems I could like see it, it could potentially have a turnaround. Yeah, if the right good. person takes it. For over. sure. Yep. Yeah. I could totally see that happening. That'd be nice. That'd be cool. This is reminding me of Billions, which just ended in the middle of the last season last year because of the I pandemic. Know. I still haven't watched that because of you telling me about how it just unceremoniously <laughs> ends. And I'm like, that seems like a weird thing to watch. Yeah, but I, we don't even know when I'd it's like coming to. back. So Yeah, no idea. Yeah. Um, okay, let me give you guys one, my one more thing. So I'm 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 playing a bunch of games that we'll talk about, like Portal, Mass Effect. I'm playing this game called World Ends Club. It's just wild, but I'll talk about that another time. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to talk about a book that I read this weekend. I read through it all in one afternoon. It was fantastic. It's called The Plot by Gene Hanf Korolitz. It came out the same day as my book, but I won't hold it against that. <laughs> uh, I won't hold that against it. Um, it is awesome. It's like this thriller book about this writer, this guy named Jacob. And he's he used to be the superstar writer. He was like named a new and noteworthy by the Times. A book about a writer? Wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard. Wow, what um, a wild idea. Before. So so he and then his career kind of tanked after that. He wrote one book that was successful and then he kind okay. of tanked after that. So he wound up becoming a teacher and he's teaching this MFA program and he's kind of miserable. And he meets this kid named Evan Parker. And this kid is just a brat, total brat, um, this egocentric, like doesn't want to be taught at all. Um, and he meets with them, and the kid is like, I have this idea for a book that is going to blow everyone away, going to be a bestseller, like be on Oprah's book club, like change, change my life. Um, and uh, Jacob, the main character, is like, OK, what is it? And Evan tells him the plot and Jacob is like blown away. Then cut to two years later, uh, Jacob finds out that Evan Parker has died. And so Jacob decides he's going to take this plot and write, write it, like turn it into Ooh. a book. Cut yeah. to a few years after that, it mm. turned out to, to, it came true. Like all of, all of Evan Parker's predictions came true. It's a bestseller. He's suddenly this world famous author. He's on Oprah, everything. Um, until like, well, not until, but suddenly one day he gets an anonymous message saying, you are a thief. And that's, that's what kicks the plot into gear, mm. uh, is that message. Cool. And from there, it's, it's a very fascinating thriller as he tries to figure out what's going on and, and lives his, his successful literary career while also having this thing hanging over his head that he stole this plot from this kid. And it asks a lot of interesting questions, like who owns a story, which I think as writers you would both appreciate. Um, but I certainly loved reading it. And yeah, I found it a, a fantastic novel and really enjoyed it. The Plot by Jean Hanf Korolitz. Um, yeah, not, not my great. favorite, not my favorite book to come out on May 11th, but a good one. Um, it's always fun when people write books about being super successful and then how that's actually bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminded me, one of my favorite books of all time is a book called How I Became a Famous Novelist by Steve Healy, which is one yeah. of the funniest books I've ever read. And um, not a similar plot, but also about someone becoming a best-selling author in a very different way. And also ex- nice. he did it in, in that book. He does it as, as a way to... Um, make his ex-girlfriend jealous because he gets a wedding invitation from her 
her, and so she, he really wants. <laughs> so to despite uh, her, he he becomes a best. Yeah, he wants to author. show up at the wedding as a famous author. Yeah, so nice. that's, that's very funny. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, and by the way, Jason, I started reading the Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Yeah, and it's awesome. I'm only it's a little awesome, ways right? into it, but it yes. starts with a bang. It's a real mystery, man. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. So that's a good recommendation. I get sometimes I get messages from people who just like use Triple Click as a book recommendation device, and that makes <laughs> it's me. It's so not happy. bad for that. that. They're yeah. welcome to use our show in that one. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, the plot. Go check it out. Really good. One of one of my favorite books of the year so far. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Kirk, Maddie, see you both next week to talk about Mass Effect. Yeah. See you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.